everyone. Um, it's, we're really delighted to welcome you here at Birkbeck today for what is the final conference of the Uberactin Internationalist Project. Um, the conference really had its origins about two years ago or so when um, we were very lucky to have uh, Bridget as one of our visiting fellows. Actually, the, the Reluctant Internationalist Project began even long ago, four years ago, um, as an investigation really into the history of internationalism in the 20th century. Yeah, there were, at that point, five of us here at Birkbeck, each working on a slightly different angle, but we're all political, social, cultural, medical historians trying to think about what it meant uh, to, to think and act internationally in, in 20th century Europe. Um, every year we've been uh, joined by really fantastic visiting fellows, and I'm really glad that a number of them are, are in the audience uh, today. Uh, and every one of them has opened up new doors uh, of expertise and, 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 and new questions which we have explored. And it was Bridget in particular who really made us think about uh, just how central language is uh, to uh, any practical understanding and experience of internationalism uh, in the past and, and present. And it was Bridget who put this idea for a conference on the table and who then made us run with it. It was a, it was a, a very good idea. Because in fact, every one of the organizations and initiatives and international collaborations uh, we study requires uh, some kind of a shared language um, or languages through which the members could uh, communicate. Every kind of interaction between the, the agents of a particular international uh, pr program and those at the receiving end um, was to a certain extent framed by the language in which Bridget was take, uh, was, it took place. And for every venture, international venture that did get off the ground, there was one that didn't, and language inevitably also had something to do with, with that as well. So we think it's extremely fitting that the final conference is about languages of internationalism, and uh, we are so grateful to Bridget for everything she's done, and for, first of all, convincing us that this is a topic we should all study, and also for making this happen. I don't think any of us really would be here today unless it was from Bridget. <laughs> thank you so much, and thank you for having all of us. I actually want to begin with a few more thank yous, and first I want to thank all of you for getting here. Many of you in the room actually traveled quite far. Some of you have not slept yet. And <laughs> even of you who, who traveled shorter distances to be here, I appreciate it a great deal. I think we're going to have a good time over the next uh, three days. I also want to thank Siobhan Morris in the back of the room, who is our event coordinator and who has made sure that all of the various pieces to make this event come together were taken care of. This has been a wonderful collaborative endeavor, but if you're off in Brooklyn, New York, you can't really manage room bookings and, and other things um, in London so easily. So thank you, Siobhan, for making sure that everything uh, was put into order. I wanted to say a few words about the reluctant internationalists first. I'm not a permanent member, um, so therefore I don't, I'm not required to be humble about all of the endeavors. <laughs> so um, I know that many of you are well acquainted with the Re uh, Reluctant Internationalist Research Group. Some of you may be less so, but I, I will note that when you submitted your paper abstracts more than a year ago, um, the vast majority of you mentioned that it would be a great kind of opportunity to meet up with these scholars who you had been admiring already for some time. So Jessica here, <laughs> Jessica Reinisch is um, the lead investigator on a four-year Welcome Trust program initiative, right, that was designed to study international organizations with a special emphasis on public health and institutions that were designed to manage moments of crisis or need for humanitarian aid in Europe in the 20th century. I think over time, as you guys um, 
work together. It kind of ventured off in other arenas as well. So Jessica is the lead investigator, but right today, at least three of the other main uh, members of the Reluctant Internationalist Project team are here, and you'll meet uh, Johanna in coming days. So Dora Varga, who has since landed a permanent position at uh, the University of Exeter, and next to Dora is David Bryden. Forgive me if I mispronounced that. I like to hallucinate pronunciations of things. Um, David just this past February, if I remember correctly, defended his PhD, th PhD thesis on Franco's internationalists, and he'll be teaching at Birkbeck in this coming year, a little birdie tells me. And next to David is uh, Anna Antich, and she is also at the University of Exeter. So these scholars, Johanna Contario will also be joining us soon, but she's traveling all the way from Australia, so we will have to uh, heap our pity upon her <laughs> when, she, when she arrives. She's recently taken a position at Linders uh, University. So this group, just in the past four years, has proven in equal measure to be kind of pioneering scholarly research team, awe-inspiring, and just so enormously creative and energetic in all that they've done. I prepared some of my notes for this next uh, portion at three in the morning when I woke up with jet lag, so if things start to get a little lacky, just, <laughs> just forgive me. Um, it was two years ago when they took me on as a visiting fellow that we decided that we were going to um, sponsor this last conference on the languages of internationalism. And Jessica at the time told me, this will be the last of our big conferences, the last of our events, the last big event for our four-year time together. And my joke then, and ever since, has been no pressure, right? <laughs> um, because I have a lot to follow up on. So I just wanted, in case you haven't participated in their events before, um, to give you a slice of the conferences and workshops that they have held in the past four years. Um, I imagine I'm going to be just exhausted going through the list, right? So, Agents of Internationalism, The Black Sea and the Socialist World, Homecomings, Experiences and Narratives of World War II Resistance, Veterans in the Construction of Post-War Europe, Thinking about Health and Welfare in Eastern Europe and Beyond, Debating the Cold War, After the End of Disease, Aid to Armenia, Armenia and Armenians in International History, Crossing Borders, the Spanish Civil War and Transnational Mobilization, Writing Outsiders into the History of International Public Health, Socialist Internationalism, these are all different conferences, uh, Refugees and Children, Writing, Exhibiting and Depicting Refugee Stories for Children, and now um, here we are today for Languages of Internationalism. In addition to all of this, and in addition to pursuing their own individual research projects, they have also um, managed a rather uh, pioneering blog that featured a very exceptional series of, of pieces on the refugee crisis in our recent times. They've started teaching workshops to kind of work with secondary school teachers and to think about how our scholarly studies and forays into the study of internationalism can be useful for secondary school teachers. We've done some walking tours that I was sad to miss out on. I would have, I would have enjoyed Communist London for sure. <laughs> um, and they've also hosted over these past years uh, almost two handfuls of visiting fellows, and I was obviously very fortunate to be one. And when I applied to be a visiting fellow with the Reluctant Internationalists, I submitted my application with a bit of a hope and a prayer. In the first case, my project, um, which is a study of Esperanto and internationalism in late Imperial Russia and the early Soviet Union, was much more in its infancy at the time. 
but I also had to kind of um, just make the case that although I wasn't studying on a segment of international history that was focused on public health or disease or humanitarianism, that there was a kind of um, wide space that we could creatively work together and to think about internationalism in different ways. And so I made the argument that um, it would be useful too to think about how language is at the heart of just about every potential internationalist enterprise, whether it's a dream, whether it's an idea, or whether it's an actual institutionalized project. And that language presents both obstacles and dilemmas, but also potential opportunities. And so what began, I believe, as a proposal to have a symposium, ultimately became um, a three-day conference in which all of you submitted excellent proposals and abstracts. And so I couldn't be happier that this is happening under the auspices of such a wonderful uh, collaborative group, Reluctant Internationalists. So thank you so much. We should say on a practical point of view, so we tried to fit in as many papers as we possibly could into the program. We've had a couple of people drop out inevitably because of uh, health and various problems, but generally the program is very packed. <laughs> Which is why we're saying please stick to your times and the chairs have been instructed to cut you off ruthlessly, just so that we have time for questions and discussions, which is inevitably the, the, the bit where, where everything comes together. Um, this evening we have a conference meal tomorrow night, and this evening we have, we'd be very happy if you could join us for some drinks in a nearby uh, pub, but we can talk about uh, the directions and all of that after the um, our second panel today. And with that, I think we should ask the first panel to move. I don't, but Claire does. And I'm told, Claire, that your PowerPoint should be already. I can see it. You can see it. Okay, good. happy to introduce, <laughs> crazy, here am I introducing Bridget O'Keefe, and you have no idea who I am. Um, anyway, this is Bridget O'Keefe, and, um, and I'm Humphrey Tonkin, and, um, and Claire Shaw from the University of Bristol, soon to be from the University of Warwick, um, who is our other um, presenter today. Um, Valeska Huber is not with us, um, which means that that these, these two loquacious individuals um, have an additional piece of time to, um, um, to present their papers. But I do want to leave a good deal of time at the end for discussion. So, um, so we will move right ahead. I suggest that we, um, we simply present the two papers and then have a general discussion, if that makes sense. So Bridget, All right. take it away, as they say. Awesome. If you don't mind, I think I'm going to stay. I decided to go old school and not do a PowerPoint. And also, about half of my remarks um, are going to come from a prepared text, and the other half I'm going to build from an outline. So depending on your flavor, <laughs> everyone should end up partially um, satisfied. 
All right. So, in 1933, Andrei Platonov began writing his short novel, Happy Moscow. This novel, like the author, met a rather unhappy fate. Deemed too controversial in the 1930s, it was not published in the Soviet Union until 1991. And the protagonists of Happy Moscow would not have been surprised in the least by this censorship. Theirs, after all, was the quandary of Soviet citizens occupying the painfully liminal and frustratingly imperfect Soviet present of the early 1930s. They lived in an age that had forsworn the degradations of the pre-revolutionary past and had committed stalwartly to a radiant future. And Platonov's pragmatists in Happy Moscow worked to build a glorious socialist future that remained painfully and self-consciously beyond their reach. It's not for nothing that one of the protagonists of Happy Moscow, the most earnest, idealistic, and charitable, but also, at least in the early chapters of this, of this story, the most lonely and the most depressed, was an Esperantist. <laughs> <laughs> He is, as most Esperantists I've met, absolutely delightful. So let me tell you a little bit more about him. <laughs> um, in Happy Moscow, we are introduced to Viktor Vasilievich Bozhko in his natural habitat, a studio apartment in the industrializing Soviet capital of Moscow. The centerpiece of this man's modest dream world, Platonov tells us, is his desk, above which hung, quote, three portraits, Lenin, Stalin, and Dr. Zamenhof, the inventor of the international language of Esperanto. Perhaps even more significant, Platonov goes on, below these portraits, in four rows, hung small photographs of nameless people. And in the photographs were not only white faces, but also Negroes, Chinese, and the inhabitants of countries of every kind. During the working hours of socialist daylight, Bashko works as a town planner, an architect of the urban socialist future. He is a celebrated shock worker. And he has just this very day, Platono tells us, quote, completed the meticulous plan of a new residential street, calculating the places of greenery, children's playgrounds, and a district stadium. He is anticipating a future now close at hand, and he works with a heartbeat of happiness, although he looks upon himself as a man born under, communism, uh, under capitalism with indifference. In his quiet, solitary evenings, Bajko serves the Soviet motherland and the international proletariat using his pen and a unique linguistic weapon of world revolution. He engages in Esperantist correspondence with friends and acquaintances all over the globe. Their common language is the international auxiliary language of Esperanto. And so with paper, pen, and constructed language, they together bring international solidarity to life. Platonov himself emphasizes the modesty of their efforts, saying, drained by labor, too poor for travel, they communicated with one another through shared thought. And Platonov also includes a sampling of Bashko's Esperantist correspondence, a simple letter that characteristically transmits his promise of Soviet socialism's radiance in Esperanto. Dear distant friend, I received your letter Everything here is going from strength to strength. The communal good of the laboring people multiplies day by day, and the world's proletariat is accumulating a vast inheritance in the form of socialism. Every day, fresh gardens are growing, new housing is being occupied, and invented machines are working fast. Different splendid people are appearing too. I alone remain as before, 
because I was born long ago and have not been able to lose the habit of being myself. In five or six years, we shall have all kinds of cultured comforts, and the workers from the other five-sixths of the earth, a whole billion of them, can come and live with us forever. Pay attention to the great ocean. You live on its shore. Sometimes you'll see Soviet ships sailing about. That's us. Bajko, of course, is a fictional character. And yet. Platonov modeled him after an Esperantist friend. And Platonov himself had, like thousands of other Soviet citizens in the 1920s and 1930s, studied Esperanto, imagining the different applications that could possibly come of this novel linguistic creation, an international auxiliary language that boasts um, amongst its charms the ability to be mastered in a matter of several weeks or at most a few months. So Bajko is worth reflecting upon because he represents the real life story of thousands of Esperantists who endeavored to use the constructed language of Esperanto to service the early Soviet state's ideological aims both at home and abroad. Like Bajko, they found themselves somewhat awkwardly positioned in Soviet intellectual, cultural, and social life. And like Bajko, they hopefully anticipated that Esperanto would serve as a bridge of words, but also as a bridge of worlds, a bridge between pre-revolutionary past and a radiant socialist future. Theirs was a project with undeniable pre-revolutionary Tsarist Russian origins. Zamenhof's Esperanto, launched hopefully from Warsaw in 1887, was liable to charges of effete petty bourgeois idealism and even pampered elite quackery. Like Bajko, Esperanto and Esperantism seemed threatened by its own pre-revolutionary origins and even its, quote, sense of self. With one foot arguably stuck behind in the past, how could Esperantists take a confident Soviet leap forward? Yet Esperantists in the Soviet Union pinned their hopes on the socialist future in the making. And they also hinged their rationale for Esperanto's marriage with Bolshevik ideals on this vision, but also this rhetoric of the future. And for a very short, but nonetheless significant time in the 1920s, and even the very early 1930s, their tactics seemed at least somewhat to have worked. In the late 1930s, however, the Esperantists became rather obvious targets of Stalin's devastating purges and terror. In 1937, the Soviet future was foreclosed rather dramatically, at least for Esperantists, and seemingly for Esperanto in the Soviet Union. And so for the remainder of my time uh, this afternoon, I just want to give a broad outline of the successes and pitfalls that these Esperantists faced in the Soviet 1920s and the 1930s. On their own, uh, the Soviet Esperantists may not seem terribly worthy of historians' time and attention. But when they are placed in their wider and even their more specific historical context, it becomes easier to see and to understand what many Bolsheviks in the 1920s and the 1930s did not. The Esperantists raised a question of enormous practical and theoretical significance in revolutionary Russia. How could the Bolsheviks hope to succeed in their pursuit of an international proletarian revolution without offering the global proletariat a language with which to effectively and effortlessly communicate, collaborate, and wage the revolutionary struggle? So of course, um, the history of Esperanto has its very origins in the Tsarist Russian Empire. 
And while that goes beyond the confines of my presentation today, at the time of the revolutionary tumults of 1917, there were already long-established groups of Esperantists already at work in Imperial Russia. And they continued um, all throughout the early revolutionary years, organizing in large measure on a very grassroots level and often in a very local format. But very kind of pivotally in June 1921, right at the um, on the heels of the Russian Civil War, there met in Petrograd, very famously, the so-called Third All-Russian Congress of Esperantists. And those who had assembled decided that it was time to concentrate all of the Esperantists' efforts into one central organizing body that would commit to deploying Esperanto in the service of the new Bolshevik path. And their stated mission was to transmit all of their Esperantist energies not to propagate and advertise Esperanto as a worthy project, but to demonstrate practically and undeniably its value and its uh, use for the Soviet project, both at home and abroad. These Esperantists who organized um, what came to be known as the Union of Soviet Esperantists, established in 1921, were very receptive to the awkwardness of their position, right? How do you suddenly marry the ideals of Esperanto, which in the previous several decades had seemed to be tied up in a very idealistic project of someone who did not have an avowed socialist connection of any, any worth or merit to the Soviet project in particular? And in this way, the future, as both a kind of rhetorical device, but also as an imaginarium, served these Esperantists very well. And so even in their initial documents, you'll find the Soviet Esperantists saying that the future can only be constructed, the radiant socialist future can only be constructed with the aid of this formidable linguistic weapon of revolution. And they also put some creative efforts into kind of retrofitting Esperanto's czarist era past and um, framing its value in the new Bolshevik terms. This actually wasn't too much of a leap, right? Bolshevik rhetoric in general was hinged on the future. In the here and now, right, there's tumult and there are challenges and there are a wide variety of dilemmas, um, perhaps the least of which on the Bolsheviks' radar was this issue of international language. But that all of these dilemmas, challenges, obstacles would be overcome and the radiant socialist future would very hopefully be achieved. So these Soviet Esperantists make a point very early on of saying that 1917 had liberated not only the workers and the peasants, but it had also liberated Esperanto. And now was a time for Esperanto to kind of slough off its backwardness, much like the Russian people were going to slough off its pre-revolutionary backwardness and move forward um, rather confidently into the radiant socialist future. Their efforts were, on the one hand, rhetorical, right? But they also had to earn their kind of stripes as being able to show that there was legitimate use. There was a place in this um, challenged early Soviet period for Esperanto. And that the Soviet state had good reason to invest scarce resources in their endeavors. So throughout the 1920s and through the 1930s, while the Esperantists were um, engaging in their activities, they concentrated their efforts in a few areas in particular. 
Perhaps the most notable, the most well-famed, is that they participated very energetically in something called workers' correspondence. And the idea here was that they were going to engage in pen pal letter writing campaigns with workers all over the world, which helps explain our character from Platonov's story, Happy Moscow. And in these letters, right, the whole task, the whole didactic purpose here was to relate to foreigners abroad and to persuade them of the Soviet Union's greatness, of the radiant socialist future that was coming. But it was less so to um, just communicate and make friendships with people abroad. This was really about acting in the service of spreading Soviet ideology and gaining um, the allegiance of workers abroad. They also energetically used the modern technologies that the Bolsheviks were also very eager to use. Starting in 1924, they regularly transmitted via the common turn radio signal Esperanto broadcasts that were heard and listened to by eager Esperantists in Europe and elsewhere throughout the world. Some of these transmissions were um, simply a matter of teaching Esperanto as a language, but even more so, this was an opportunity through this auxiliary language to tout to the world and to whoever was listening that life in the early Soviet Union was really very great and glorious and that they were eager and happy and proud participants of a Soviet future that was becoming in the here and now. They sponsored Esperanto courses all over the Soviet Union. They uh, had their own journal that had various names throughout the years, but that ultimately ended up, for the most of its time period, going by the name of Mezhdunarodny Yizik, the international language, which, as it happens, the bulk of which is actually in Russian, but this shouldn't surprise us, really. That's for another conversation. But of all of their endeavors, in many ways, their flashiest and the one that produced for them the most short-term successes was their mission to serve as cultural diplomats and to host delegations of foreign Esperantists who, at their behest, were invited to visit the socialist future as it was. So at two points in the late 1920s, both in 1926 and 1927, the Soviet Esperantists um, were a, they lobbied, lo lobbied vigorously to be able to do this, but they were promised a degree of resources and certainly official approval to invite foreign Esperantists to travel to the Soviet Union and to experience firsthand all the great and gloriousness of the Soviet Union. So the first of these was in August of 1926 in Leningrad. The Soviet Esperantists hosted the World Congress of Proletarian Esperantists, and several hundred foreign Esperantists traveled by foot in some cases, but also by train to Leningrad to participate in these events. The second event wasn't a specifically Esperantist event, but the Esperantists placed their stake in it. The second event was the 1927 10th anniversary celebration of the October Revolution, which was held with much incredible fanfare in November of 1927. In both of these cases, you have the Soviet Esperantists taking it upon themselves in very dedicated fashion to organize, to arrange um, these foreign Esperantists not only to make it to the Soviet Union, but to see the Soviet Union in all of its finery. And so these foreign Esperantists who showed up for these two events were, like most visitors to the Soviet Union in the 1920s and the 1930s, subjected to quite grueling itineraries of um, didactic tourist adventure. So the idea was to have these Esperantists meet with 
uh, fellow Soviet Esperantists of all stripes, but also to, in dizzying fashion, visit all the sites of um, the revolution's glory, to see model schools, to see model factories, um, to see model sanatoria, um, so that they would A, be dazzled by what they saw, but B, so that they would go home and spread the good word about what they had seen with their own eyes, unmediated, right, as the argument went, by the need for translators or interpreters, all that was wonderful about the Soviet Union. And here the Esperantists and how they sold these ventures to the bureaucracies upon whom they were dependent, the idea was that with foreign Esperantists that become enamored of the Soviet promise and also the Soviet premise, you kind of achieved um, friends who were useful in more ways than one. Because of course these Esperantists could go back to their home countries and talk about what they had seen in the Soviet Union with their own eyes in their own national languages, but they could also take Esperanto to its intended logic and also pr uh, propagandize the Soviet mission using Esperanto as well. In most cases, the Soviet Esperantists were able to look back on these two very notable endeavors of hosting uh, foreign delegations with some pride and also with a feeling that they had won themselves uh, a deal of success, right? That they had proved themselves in their mission. In both cases, you had delegates from abroad who weren't themselves necessarily avowed socialists. Thank you. Um, most, their, their kind of favorite example of a foreign Esperantist who came to the Soviet Union was a, in their telling, a kind of crotchety old socialist, social democrat from Austria who showed up um, and crankly said, I'm not prepared to be impressed by anything that I see here, but who was so dazzled by the October, <laughs> the October Revolution celebrations that he said standing on Red Square for seven very long hours and seeing the narrative of joy and Soviet triumph was enough for him to kind of have this revelatory transformation of consciousness. And he, as the story went, uh, begged the Esperantists for anything that they could give him so that he could go home and tell all of his friends um, that he had been transformed by all he had seen. So in the short term, these, these affairs were great coups for the Soviet Esperantists. They had, their successes had afforded them um, a measure of continuity in terms of support from the Soviet state, which was always quite limited. But also, these were opportunities to kind of shore up the leagues of um, Soviet Esperantists themselves. And in the late 1920s, hot on the heels of these two rather publicized events, the membership roles, the formal membership roles of the Union of Soviet Esperantists um, skyrocketed. The early 1930s were not as, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no, I'm gonna, try and keep my time here. The early 1930s were not terrible, but they weren't great for the Soviet Esperantists. With the launching of the first five-year plan, it was apparent to them, and they discussed it in their own records at the time, that if Esperanto was never a priority in the 1920s, that they were definitely getting sidelined further and further with all of the resources that were having to be devoted to the actual construction of socialism. And it's for another time and another conversation, but you can also kind of see the plight of these Esperantists revealed in their correspondence with one another in which they lament beginning in the early 1930s, and it gets worse and worse with every passing month, that they are allotted less and less paper as the time goes on. And the less paper that the Esperantists receive from the state to carry on their business, the less obvious support that they have for their 
a seemingly quixotic adventure in general. But the real um, unfortunate problem for the Soviet Esperantists is this wave of purges and terror that sweeps Soviet Russia um, beginning after the assassination of Kirov, but really takes off for the Esperantists in particular in 1937. Uh, the Soviet Esperantists were sitting ducks, essentially. All of their patriotic service of the 1920s and the early 1930s, corresponding with anarchists, social democrats, people of all ideological stripes abroad in the service of trying to court potential friends and allies of the Soviet Union, became overnight transformed into evidence of their disloyalty, their treason, and their sabotage against the Soviet state. And rather dramatically, it did not take long once the leadership of the Union of Soviet Esperantists was first um, arrested for most of the prominent and even the more rank and file Esperantists to come unfortunately under um, these devastating purges. Again, the leadership was not just arrested. In most cases, they were executed, although not in all. And many rank and file Esperantists um, languished in the Soviet gulag, punished for their efforts in the 20s and 30s. It is for this reason, those of you among us who are literature scholars of the Soviet Union, right, who will be able to attest to what I'm about to say, that when you read memoir, even literary explorations of uh, Stalin's gulag, there is almost always a kind of stock character Esperantist in the camps. This too, right, um, is a literary uh, trope that is based in real life. If you'll indulge me, I will just spend one minute and I'm going to return to Platonov and Happy Moscow. <clears throat> the translator of Happy Moscow for the volume that I used in preparing this talk uh, writes in his reflection, Quote, happy Moscow begins with a promise of paradise and ends in despair. And this last line of the novel, the last line of the novel itself, eerily is one that the NKVD act activists who carried out Stalin's purges might sympathize with. Platonov himself ended happy Moscow with the words, if all of humanity were lying still and sleeping, it would be impossible to judge its real character from its face and one could be deceived. And it's not for nothing that Platonov's fictional Esperantist Bajko does it seemed, survived the 1930s seemingly unscathed. But it's not for nothing but that by the end of that novel, he himself had given up Esperanto and also world revolution, much like the Soviet state had done under Stalin. And he focused in the last stages of the novel on much more prosaic human affairs. He stopped dreaming of the future beyond his reach and turned to the private expanse of his home and to the more personal relations of love. I will stop there. Okay. okay. Um, I do have a PowerPoint. Not a lot more. Yes. Um, is there a clicker? Does anyone know? No. Um, right, I can stand up in that case. So, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. This is very exciting. I was at the um, Black Sea and the Socialist World Conference at the very beginning mm -hmm. of the Reluctant Internationalists. It's very nice to be back um, at the end. Um, I am jumping forward now to the Cold War period. Um, and I should, a slight disclaimer before I start, that this is something of a work in progress. This is material that has come out of my monograph project, which is a history of the deaf community in the USSR. 
um, and I'm still kind of working out how to position these materials. So if anybody has comments or suggestions, I am very, very open to them. Um, so in 1963, um, a series of classified reports were sent to the Ideological Commission of the Soviet Central Committee concerning Soviet participation in the World Federation of the Deaf, which was a relatively new international body set up in 1951 uh, to bring together deaf people from all over the world and to enable them to have these spaces in which to be deaf together and to lobby um, internationally for their own welfare. The author of these reports, um, one Pavel Sutyagin, uh, was the late deafened chairman of the All-Russian Society of the Deaf, which was a kind of extraordinary organisation. It was a republic-wide deaf-run organisation uh, established in 1917 that organised services for deaf people throughout the Soviet period. Sutyagin, as well as being head of this organisation, served as the head of the Soviet delegation to the World Federation of the Deaf. These reports are fascinating. Uh, they are very long, very detailed, and they go into an awful lot of kind of juicy information about what's going on in these uh, international uh, meetings. Um, but one of the most intriguing moments for me comes uh, with Sutyagin's discussion of the Gestumo project, uh, which was the attempt by the World Federation of the Deaf to create a unified international sign language. Now, Sutyagin explains, for the benefit of his reader, um, that this language was intended to, and I quote, um, facilitate the mutual understanding of the deaf of different countries and ease the work of delegates at deaf international congresses. He gets a little dig in, he laments the fact that the project has not yet seen results. He says it's due to the lack of activity by its leader, Ole Plum, who's from Denmark. Um, he then adds, cryptically, um, we should note that the sign language that is used by deaf people in the USSR was comprehensible to all delegates of the Congress who recognized it as one of the most perfect systems of gesture. In other words, um, why are we bothering with an international language if our language can win? Um, this I love because um, this is very Soviet Cold War. You know, the, the Soviet Union was, was uh, demonstrating to the world that they did everything better. So why should they not do being deaf better and signing better? Um, and I think that's very much how they saw their role in the World Federation, actually. But I think uh, this statement kind of reveals a series of tensions, I think, regarding deafness and language and internationalism that I'm hoping to um, tease out today. Gestuno, uh, which is a sort of sign Esperanto, I think it, it is referred to as such, um, was first mooted in 51 with the creation of the World Federation of the Deaf. And it was really conceived as a post-World War II peace project. Um, the head of the Federation, um, who is an Italian child of deaf parents, Cesare Magarotto, um, he said that the language would allow deaf people, um, and I quote, mutilated by nature and by the atavistic faults of society, to cross all borders, hearing only their fraternity. So it's it's mixed, mixed bag, that quote. I mean, it's, it's not exactly <laughs> atavistic, mutilated, but fraternity, that's good. Um, the notion of an international community that is united by deafness is, is a long-standing and a very resonant one in deaf studies and deaf history in general. Uh, most deaf historians refer back to uh, Ferdinand Berthier, who is the 19th century French deaf activist um, who first argued for the understanding of the deaf as a nation crossing all national borders. So the idea that, um, as another deaf activist uh, quoted Shakespeare, saying, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. So deafness 
creates this community that sort of sits on top of national divisions. And Gestenot, which is now known as International Sign, or IS, um, emerges from this notion of an international deaf community and is now commonly used, actually, at international encounters of deaf people on a number of levels. However, um, the advent of the Gestenot project coincided with very problematic global debates about deafness and the role of sign languages, and also, uh, not least, the worsening of international tensions in the Cold War. So Sutiagin's reports that I opened with were produced a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, when international fraternity was far from straightforward. And Sutiagin really conceived of his role in the World Federation in starkly Cold War terms. He dwelled in these reports on the danger posed by the USA, um, which threatened to use its unlimited wealth to garner influence amongst the growing deaf communities of the third world, um, and suggested ways in which the USSR could counter that influence with narratives of deaf legal rights, labor rehabilitation, and cultural power. And in that context, I think this makes a lot more sense. The idea of having the most perfect sign language has real propagandistic value in these contexts. So what I want to do today is, is to have a think about the Gestuno project as it's originally conceived and how it, how it develops over the course of the Cold War period, um, and to try and tease out what language and deafness can mean in a Cold War context, and how these international and debates about deafness and national debates about deafness intersect. At this point, I should um, start with a few sort of basic things about sign language um, and give you some background. Um, people quite often say to me, but sign language is basically international anyway, isn't it? Um, no, <laughs> it's not. Um, sign language develops in the same way um, that spoken languages do. Um, a group of people living together in a community um, develop a set of codes and signs and signifiers to define and explain the world around them. Um, and we actually have a lot of evidence that this happens in all sorts of very strange places. You know, very small communities of deaf people can actually develop very quickly um, established grammatically um, rich systems of sign. Um, as deafness is, for the most part, not genetic, though, um, a genetic um, inheritance of deafness is a very, very small percentage of, of um, deaf incidents worldwide. And the development of sign languages comes much, much later than the development of spoken languages. Um, because it requires a community, this only really develops um, with the Industrial Revolution, with the moving of people into cities, and then later with the advent of deaf schools um, in the late 18th century which sees, for the first time, large groups of deaf students come together and establish standardized forms of communication, which they then teach down to new students who are coming into the schools. These language communities don't always map easily onto spoken languages or onto nation states. So there's no unified Indian sign language, for example. There are several regional ones. Uh, American sign language is closer to French than it is to British sign language. Um, so actually, you know, there are quite a lot of interesting things going on there. Um, so sign language is not universal, but it is historically quite fraught. Um, whilst early deaf education embraced sign, uh, its further development coincided with the emergence of enlightenment politics of language and reason, which suggested um, that sign and gesture are inferior to spoken and written language. So spoken language is the language of reason, um, and gesture is, is what animals do. Um, which then you kind of keep that going and say, well, actually, that means that deaf people are savages, 
um, who must be humanized through speech. And speech would allow them um, to hear the word of God, first of all, and to be able to, to think and reason um, and become fully human, fully citizens. Um, and this advocacy of what's known as the oral method um, led to the infamous Congress of Milan in 1880, when an international group of hearing teachers of the deaf, um, significantly hearing teachers of the deaf, came together to ban sign language in education. Um, and this, because it was an international conference, it was immediately effective all over Europe and in the United States. And the effects of this moment, which is seen really by deaf historians as a moment of, of violence, of silencing and disablement, um, this really continues to be felt, actually. So sign was dismissed as inferior until the 1960s, when the linguist William Stockhoe in the United States began to produce work on American sign language that really started to reveal its lexical and grammatical complexity. Um, and at the same time, the civil rights movement uh, starts to enable the articulation of a culturally and linguistically based deaf identity, a kind of deaf ethnicity in a way, um, that pushes back against this notion that deaf people needed to be cured. So Gestuno emerges in this context, in this rediscovery and re-legitimization of both deafness and sign language, and promised to serve as an important international marker that sign was a language worthy of the name. So this is the narrative, the sort of standard narrative of sign and the development of sign and the politics of sign. Uh, this is something of a Eurocentric, American-centric narrative that's actually started to be um, unpicked and disentangled a little bit more um, in recent years. Um, quite a lot of scholars now are starting to discover that the trajectories of sign language in other places are slightly different. Um, in Russia and the USSR, um, this is certainly the case. Um, deaf education in Russia started rather later um, in the early 19th century, and tended to combine sign and speech a lot more, resulting in the creation of very strong signing communities. So lots of um, cities where deaf schools are based produce then deaf clubs of adults who, who you know, carry on signing traditions from schools. There were established contacts between Russia and Europe, which meant that sign was officially banned um, after the Congress of Milan, but it was banned in a rather half-hearted sort of way. It was uh, they you know, they, they, they told the world that they were banning sign in schools, but they didn't really do it properly. Um, and so uh, it was still routinely used um, by school children and by um, urban deaf communities. During the Russian Revolution, it gets even more interesting. Um, this is a moment where deaf people um, were granted full civil rights um, alongside other oppressed minorities. Um, and deaf uh, activists started to advocate for sign language as the mother tongue of deaf people and therefore again, bearing rights, um, and they succeeded in obtaining state-funded sign interpretation in almost all work, walks of life. Um, so sign language was really an everyday reality for Soviet deaf people um, who developed their own sign institutions, including clubs, theatres, schools, workshops, all under this framework of the All-Russian Society of the Deaf. So this is a very sort of pleasant picture. It's a good picture, of course. The Soviet Union is not always like that. Um, it went a bit wrong in 1951 um, with, with Stalin. It's always Stalin. Um, so in 1951, Stalin, in one of his um, moments of framing himself as a polymath and a man of science, um, published the book on Marxism and questions of linguistics. And 
not in the book itself, but in a, um, a discussion in Pravda that succeeded its publication, he argued that from a Marxist perspective, sign was not a language at all. And he said that, um, and this is a fantastic quotation, sign is to speech what the primitive wooden hoe is to the modern caterpillar tractor. So, uh, so yes, speech is progress and sign is not. Um, this is a very interesting moment because it really, I think, demonstrates uh, the amount of cultural and social power that the deaf community had at this point. The backlash was huge. Um, people wrote letters directly to Stalin telling him off. Um, and uh, it had quite a positive result. He ended up, um, he started um, a legislative process that ended up cementing um, sign language interpreting in the everyday lives of deaf individuals and a series of other decrees um, following in that decade uh, made sign language a much, much bigger part of deaf people's lives. But the fact that Gestuneau uh, was suggested in the same year that Stalin produced on Marxism and questions of linguistics, um, I think shows you the kind of tensions that are going on there. Um, the emergence of this project coincided with a reassertion of the value of sign language, um, and yet their defense of sign uh, rests on very different understandings of language and capability and social welfare and deafness than for the American-European camp. So Gestuno emerged as language attitudes were in some considerable flux. It is difficult enough uh, to embark on the creation of a universal language without having first to tackle the question about whether it's a language at all in its national incarnations, um, how it functions, what its grammar is, what its significance is for the communities that use it. Um, and as a project and as a language, uh, Gestuno really reflects these complexities, I think. It was, as I've mentioned, first proposed at the first meeting of the World Federation of the Deaf. In 1964, so a considerable time later, a permanent committee of experts was formed to develop the language, and this included representatives from Denmark, Italy, Great Britain, the USA, and the USSR. So quite a big international sweep. In 1975, the committee published um, this, the first uh, international gestuno dictionary. I'm sorry about the quality of the picture. I was snapping this surreptitiously in the library the other day. Um, yeah, so this is the book. It's, um, it's printed by the British Deaf Association and distributed around the world. Um, and this book includes uh, 1,500 signs organized under themes such as people and relationships, environment, uh, there's a section on natural disasters, um, and nations, so all of the uh, agreed signs for nations can be found. Um, so not completely clear, but we've got Argentina, Australia, Austria, Bangladesh, Belgium, and Bolivia here. Um, and you just flick through and you find the sign for the thing that you're trying to say. Um, strikingly, there is no suggestion of grammar in this book. Um, there is no, no hint, well, there actually, there is a hint, there is a small hint about how this might fit together. What they say is that, um, there's a page here, uh, they say is that what you do is you, you should get the, the sign, which is a re re Five minutes, okay. Reference to a thing, um, say work, for example. So um, this is work. If you want to say worker, you add a person. So work becomes worker. If you want to say working, you add a time. So work now. That becomes working. Um, so it's sort of, you know, here are the words, you work it out. But here are some suggestions. Um, 
And I think that this starts to show you how complicated this process of putting a universal sign language together must have been. Um, the, section, the selection of vocabulary is clearly not an easy process, and I'm starting to try and work out how this works. This is the sign for work in, in Russian sign now, um, but I don't know actually if this means it's the Russian sign that entered international sign language or it's the international sign that entered Russian sign language. I'm trying to piece that together. Um, I, um, yeah, I, I, there's a moment in the foreword uh, where the, the head of the committee says, no political issues, uh, no partisan views, no legal quibbles hampered the clear, precise argument of the commission, which makes me think it must have been a nightmare. Um, I don't think he'd put that otherwise. Um, <laughs> the preface, though, ends uh, with a statement of the importance of the language for deaf internationalism. Um, it says... Uh, this is Francesco Rubino says, without stress but with pleasant natural ease, may all deaf people converse in the international sign language, drawing that inner joy which so often they are denied when they meet with hearing persons. So Gestino is envisaged as this language that will unite deaf people and enable them to overcome language barriers. It therefore has to bear quite a weight of expectations and be a number of things to a number of people. Um, and whether it met those expectations or not, I think, is something of a matter of opinion. Um, it's practically successful. Um, international Sign Language is routinely used at international congresses of the deaf, at the Deaf Olympics, for deaf people when they're traveling, committee meetings, all sorts of things like that. But the reception is quite hard to glean. Um, most works on sign linguistics barely give it a mention. They say it's a language by committee, therefore we are not going to talk about it. Um, Yes, it certainly raised the status of sign. Um, it facilitated the development of ever more integrated international deaf communities. But yet, yet many um, deaf people re regard it with suspicion, um, and many fear that, um, as Hilda Howland ha has argued, um, a rise in the status of IS could weaken the political pressures um, to uh, increase the status of local sign languages. So the idea of having an international one might actually pull focus away from national sign. One could also argue that the publication of a grammar-free dictionary of gestures uh, doesn't do a lot if you're trying to argue that this is a really syntactically complicated language. Actually, one could say, well, if you can boil it down to this book, then clearly it can't be. In national context, though, and I am getting to the end, uh, in national context, particularly in the USSR, the impact of Gestuno was really profound. One of the members of the Gestuno working group, um, Josef Gehlman, here he is, um, a hearing child of deaf parents, um, he's mo more commonly known in the USSR as the linguist of Soviet sign. Um, he was the first to produce a dictionary of sign language in 1957. He was a staunch advocate for the value of sign as a language. And he, he really saw his involvement with Gestuno, actually, as an opportunity to fight for sign language in the USSR in the face of Stalin's condemnation. The Gestuno Committee had called on national deaf organizations to study and unify their national sign languages as a first step towards international unification. And Gailman really engaged with this project. And in the preface to his dictionary from 1957, um, he said, this book is designed to enable um, the raising of the culture of interpreting, the improvement of the current system of speech gestures, and the achievement of their com complete universality, at first in the Russian Republic, and then later in the USSR. As such, the publication of this book will work towards the unification of sign gesture communication as decreed by the WFD. So he sees these two things as going together. And for Gailman, acknowledging the potential universality of sign was the key to recognizing its value. He said, if you know, deaf people from all over the world can come to understand each other, 
And this flexibility means that actually they're able to grasp the world and reflect the world in ways that are much more complicated for sign, for, for speaking communities. He says actually you can, in sign language, you can, you can re respond to the world in much more immediate ways. Um, he also tells off Stalin a little bit in his dictionary, which I find quite funny. He, uh, he gets some kind of digs in. Um, at the same time, the Cold War desire to prove, as Suchagin has suggested, that Soviet sign was the most perfect of all national sign languages, led to the widespread teaching of sign, of language and its interpretation, uh, and the linking of sign to high culture and art. Now, this is something that I don't really want to overplay. Um, sign was widely used and valued before 1951. Uh, it would be a stretch, I think, to link the Soviet renaissance of sign culture solely to Gestu No. Um, I, Stalin makes, plays a big part in this, so does the Thor, the sort of the, the rising of different ways of thinking about culture. Um, but there is definitely something there, and I think it echoes what historians such as Mark Edelay have argued about the impact of Cold War competition and international scrutiny on Soviet domestic practices. So to conclude, um, Gestino was an imperfect experiment, I think, in international deaf brotherhood and communication, but one that really tapped into a number of important shifts in sign language and deaf identity that were going on worldwide. An attempt to create an international language in a time of Cold War was always going to be difficult. Um, international tensions did complicate discussions and I think really forestalled the creation of a fully-fledged, syntactically developed form of sign language. The existing national politics of sign raised particular expectations of Gestino um, and, I suppose, determined, in a sense, the ways in which participants and users responded to it. However, um, this experiment and the discourses of language that developed around it had really far-reaching consequences, I think, for the status and development of sign, both nationally and internationally. And just to know the language, uh, although it is controversial, is still in use very much today um, at International Deaf Congresses, um, at academic conferences, and even, apparently, on Turkish Facebook. Uh, this language by committee is still finding new audiences and bringing <coughs> deaf people together. Thank you. We could have gone on for a lot longer. <laughs> um, I just want to say a couple of words before opening the discussion, just by way of sort of underlining a couple of points that the, that the speakers made. Um, I don't know who it was, I've long since lost us, um, who said that today's sophisticate is yesterday's naive. And this is a really important point to bear in mind um, when we think particularly about, um, about the Soviet Union in the 1920s. Um, the people who, um, who were looking at a revolutionary world and a revolutionary um, political ideology were not naive. Um, they were, in their own context, indeed dealing with real-life problems. Today, we think of them, we think to ourselves, if I lived in the 1920s, I wouldn't buy that hogwash, which is true. Um, what, we, um, what we buy today is a different hogwash, and we don't recognize it for what it is. Um, I think that, that is a really important point, because it explains how the Esperantists in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s were examples of a phenomenon that was much, much wider. It's the gotcha phenomenon. It's the, um, it's the phenomenon of the, the Cultural Revolution in China, for example, 
where you encourage many voices. And once the voices express themselves, you close them down. And that was very much the situation in, in the Soviet Union between the 20s and the 30s. And of course, what happened, above all, was that, um, that an internationalist ideal was replaced by a nationalist ideal. So Stalinism really means nationalism. The Esperantists in the 1920s actually were able to communicate internationally in ways that most other people couldn't. And as a result, they were able to sort of get the word out about the Soviet Union. Of course, it turned out that the alleged progress in the Soviet Union um, was not as general and widespread as they thought. The net result then was that they themselves were closed down because they were speaking truth, in effect. Um, and that happened, happened to Esperantists, but it happened to all kinds of other people in all kinds of ways. So, so the Esperanto movement then becomes, becomes an exemplar of something that is much, much wider. Now, of course, in dealing with, 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 um, with Gestuno, or Gestuno, uh, however one chooses to, to pronounce it, depends, it depends if you're a Russian, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but in, in the case of, of, of Gestuno, that comes along in a period of extreme ideological uncertainty. Um, I think we sometimes underestimate, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, we underestimate the impact of World War II and the fact that Stalin, in effect, compromised his own ideals, or whatever you call them, um, with, um, with the West. And in a sense, the Soviet Union was never able to recover that notion of ideological purity. And indeed, you see Esperanto coming back in the Soviet Union, and particularly in the satellite countries, in the 1950s and 1960s, after having been completely silenced for an extended period. Now, the, the piece, of course, that we don't have in this particular puzzle, because we're missing our third speaker, is basic English. Um, many of you, I'm sure, know about basic English, but just a couple of words about it. It really came into being as a result of, um, of a book published by a guy called Ogden in 1930, um, picked up by a number of other people in the years that followed, particularly the, the critic I.A. Richards, um, essentially, basic English was a paring down of English to a minimal vocabulary. And what Ogden sought to do was to make English much, much easier to learn so that people who didn't speak English could, could learn it very easily. The problem, of course, is that if you happen to be a native speaker of English, it's very hard to speak basic English because you have to stop using most of the vocabulary you have at your disposal. And the big flaw with basic, basic English, in fact, was that, that Ogden seemed to assume that if he reduced the vocabulary, he could also limit the semantic fields of the words that are used. But of course, the opposite happens. Um, you end up with a verb like to get, for example, which, which was one of 18 verbs that Ogden left in the language. Um, and of course, get doesn't actually mean anything, really. Um, it's just a kind of, um, a kind of link between, between a subject and an object, um, or between a subject and an idea of some kind, an infinitive or whatever. So you end up then with a language which, which has an apparent simplicity, but it doesn't match the complexity of people's heads. Um, 
in limiting themselves to the vocabulary of, of basic English, they were in fact making the language a whole lot more complicated. To say things in basic English takes a lot more words than to say it in regular English. But basic English was a manifestation of a particular kind of imperialism, um, evident in the 1930s, and particularly after World War II, in the years immediately after World War II, um, when, um, when, of course, more and more people were waking up to the fact that, that the old imperialism was gradually falling apart, and it became crucially important to, to maintain a tie with the mother country, so-called, so that um, the rest of the world could continue to be ruled by mother. And, um, and so you have this, uh, this phenomenon of, of emphasis on English, particularly, in much the same way as, um, as when the British laid down um, railway tracks all over the world. They also laid down a reliance on spare parts from Britain. In the same way, if you can just lay down your language, then, then everybody becomes dependent upon the linguistic spare parts that are provided by the, by the, 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 the mother country. Now, had we been able to talk about that as well in this context, I think it would open up a whole series of other interesting ideological questions. But um, I just wanted to put that in there so that we had an understanding of how basic English fits into the picture, and the floor is yours. Questions, please. I have a question about something that came up in Bridget's paper and possibly is also relevant to Claire's paper. The changing role of the Gulag in the formation of international languages, because Bridget mentioned that in the 30, from the 30s into 1940s, the Gulag itself kind of internationalizes in some ways. Because uh, you mentioned that in the 1930s, this is where Esperanto goes to die, as it were. Quite or language, so, yeah. Yeah, or language. Um, and what I ended up thinking about, um, and that's a little bit later, fast forward 15 years, uh, German POWs, um, memoirs, constantly commenting on how the Gulag in the 1940s, or by the mid-1940s, became a universal language school. And they actually almost used these words. So I'm wondering if you have seen or heard both of you of anything about you know how the Gulag in a weird backhanded way may have actually furthered the formation of international languages or perhaps you know some kind of older new intersections there that would have been completely contrary to the intent. Well, it's a fascinating question. In some ways, it was uh, that that portion was thrown in as almost an incidental, but I don't envision it as such um, because I do think that depending on what sources would be available, right? There's a ripe opportunity to think about language in the gulag and this potential for the gulag to work as, in some ways, a, re, um, a site of regeneration for some of the, these languages that are sent there to die. Um, to this point in my research, though, I haven't, I haven't studied the question or the gulag sources per se. It's just come out in the sense that I know that my Soviet Esperantists many of them end up in the gulag, and so I've made the literary connection. But one of the things that we included in our call for papers that unfortunately did not elicit a great deal of presenters was thinking about POW, POW camps in general as a kind of site for languages of internationalism broadly conceived and, and as language schools as such. 
So even if it's not me who takes on that project, I think it would be a great project. Yes. I mean, certainly from a sign language perspective, yes. There is, um, this was something that I tried to find information um, about as I was writing my book, and I've not been able to get as much as I wanted to. I have one memoir of a deaf man in the Gulag, but he spends most of the memoir talking about how the deaf brigade that he set up was so much more um, useful and effective than the hearing brigades, and therefore showing how you know, how much better deaf people were at, you know, just being socialist even when they were in the camps. So he doesn't talk much about language. And the fact that we don't have a lot of evidence that deaf people were targeted in the Gulag, I only have one case of a group of deaf people who were targeted. So we don't necessarily see that many deaf people ending up in the camps. So in terms of that process of, of sort of being in a concentrated sort of place, um, it's the evacuation in the Second World War that is much, much more significant. Um, because deaf people were routinely placed after the, uh, from the first five-year plan were routinely placed in factories in brigades of deaf people served by a sign language instructor, usually in the noisiest parts of the fa factory, and they would have to learn sign in order to be able to work in those, um, in those places. And when all of the factories were evacuated in the Second World War, of course, deaf people were not allowed to fight, so they were taking up a much larger proportion of the workforce and um, most of these factories were then consolidated um, east of the Urals and so the deaf brigades got bigger and bigger and bigger and the sign language developed further because of that. So that's certainly in the history that I've been writing that sort of stands out much more significantly than the Gulag but I do think the Gulag is, is part of this story as well. Yes. You know one of the, um, one of the great centres of, um, of Esperanto in 1916-17 was Wormwood Scrubs, for many of those same reasons, conscientious objectors who were learning mm -hmm. Esperanto. Mm -hmm. yeah. right, thank you both for fantastic and fascinating papers. Um, as I was listening to both of you, I was thinking about something that I'm kind of grappling with in my, with in my own work, is that Soviet efforts to communicate, like the Soviet language was essentially addressing all the time both national and international audiences, right? And highly visible in the projects, in kind of the efforts that you described. So I was wondering if you could offer some thoughts about how the national international linked in kind of Soviet, I guess, imagination of receiving public, about the efforts to mobilize people to promote the Soviet project, etc. So are they parallel? Are they intersecting? Just what's the relationship between the two avenues of communication? Well, one thing that's striking in terms of what support, albeit tepid a lot of times, what support there was on the part of the Soviet state to promote Esperanto and to sponsor Esperanto language courses was that this was a time when the bulk of the population was exhorted to become literate, in most cases for the first time, right? And so you have peasants and workers who are going to school after working full days at the factory and also learning to read and write in the Russian language itself. Um, I don't think that priority was ever displaced by any type of Esperantist dream, but there was a kind of profitable ideological claim that could be made about Esperanto, and the Esperantists themselves used it, and I think that it was fairly effective in terms of their lobbying power, which was to say that um, this is a worker and a peasant state. Workers and peasants under the old regime were denied all types of education, but they were certainly denied access to foreign language instruction, which was the preserve of the wealthy, the rich, the privileged. And so um, 
while it was never the priority over and above learning Russian, for example, the argument could be made that this was, in its own way, a democratizing function, right? That um, now you have workers who can, in their own spare time, with relative ease and with relative comfort, learn a second language that can be useful to them in an international arena, that they themselves can imagine themselves also in an international arena, even though they're also, as, as my Platonov says, right, that they're too poor to travel <laughs> and they're too exhausted by labor. But this notion that Esperanto was the kind of the dream international language of a proletarian because it was um, easy and it didn't require the kind of privilege that learning a foreign language otherwise would were. And hence, it's more related. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, so the, the, um, the, the attempt to propagandize Soviet deafness on an international stage coincides with the attempt to propagandize deafness on a national stage. So actually, um, the reports that I, I was talking about, um, they start with an appeal to the Central Committee to produce information brochures about deafness to distribute in the USSR. And so actually I've, got, um, I've been able to compare um, the brochure that they produced in Russian for a domestic audience with the one that they produced in English for an international audience. And the, the uh, narratives are very, very similar. Um, but they're quite problematic narratives, actually. Um, it's partly to do with the impact of the Second World War in that um, Following the Second World War, there's a very, very strong shift towards materialism and the idea that deafness in some way should be deserving of benefits from the state, which starts to kind of push against the agency that the, the deaf community had been arguing for from, from the very beginning. And they, they go very hard for that narrative in both contexts because they believe that it shows, um, it, would sh it shows the domestic audience that they look after their own, but it shows the international audience that they are not totalitarian you know, it's following the secret speech. They want to make sure that everybody knows that the Soviet Union is, you know, is cuddly and good. Um, but of course, in the in the in the deaf community, in the international deaf community, that doesn't play very well because this is the moment in which the deaf community are saying, "We don't want to be looked after. We don't want paternalism. We want agency." And so, actually, the story that's told internationally just bombs very badly. And if you ask anyone in, you know, any uh, Western deaf people from that era, what they know about the Soviet Union, they'll say, oh, well, the Soviet Union was terrible, terrible place to be there, because, you know, you weren't allowed to do anything, and you were just coddled, and, but which is not at all true. <laughs> there you go. This is what happens when you, try, when you try and tell your narrative to the audience, and you're not entirely sure who the audience is. Yes. I was very struck by what um, Humphrey said about the framing of basic English, and it has uh, tremendous resonances with the framing of global English by um, the UK government in its initiation of development policy in the post war. If you read the Foreign Office archives and the, uh, the archives of the predecessors of DFID, like the Office of, of, of International Development, it's quite clear that English is unproblematically associated with modernization, with the transition of populations from rural to urban communities. And so you know, it's, it's not seen as a basic English, it's just seen as English. But, but it has that particular internationalist framing, which is key in in the development of, of, of UK policy. Yeah, and everybody is busily out there trying to demythologize it, and it doesn't seem to work in that respect. Yeah. Please. Um, 
Yeah, thank you both for these really interesting papers. I wanted to ask Bridget in particular if sort of about the tensions between nationalism and internationalism in your story mm -hmm. um, and whether part of the purge of the Esperantists is a sort of charge that Russian should be the universal language. Like, does that, does that come in at all? I don't see that explicitly. And I actually, I don't think that I see the purges of the Esperantists as the death of Soviet internationalism either. I think it's a death of a certain type of Soviet internationalism. That there was a, Esperantists were frightening, right? Because if you, if you have people with this unique capacity, even if it's available to all to easily master and learn, but if you have a segment of your population that is in many ways on its own terms engaging in these international um, diplomatic efforts, even if they say that it's in the service of the state and pre-approved ideological ideals, there's um, the threat of sedition, right? Yeah, it's, the, kind of, it's kind of linguistic fifth column. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were, they were literally the classic kind of, there was no way the Esperantists were not going to come under those purges precisely because they had this, this unique um, avenue. So. I don't really read this despairing, the despair of my own paper, actually, and the despairing end that I left off with as um, that this is a death in the coffin of Soviet internationalism. But I think that, at least temporarily, it's definitely a death in the, a, a nail in the coffin of Esperanto as having some potential marriage with the Soviet state and its, yeah. and its demands. And it was precisely because there was this sense that um, this Esperanto, these, they're a fifth column and we cannot control them. We don't know what they're doing. And do we even want to put in the resources to read all of their letters that they're sending out that might not be saying such nice things about us, right? Um, so I don't think that, it, I don't read it as a kind of allegory for the death of Soviet internationalism so much as I think it's a death of a certain type, a certain niche type of internationalism. I guess I was just more interested in whether there is sort of competing, a competition between the idea that we should could be a, a universal language. Right, right, right. Or, you know, versus Esperanto, whether that comes up at all. I don't see that yet, but there is this interesting bridge between my paper and your paper, which we will. <laughs> but no, I don't see the, the framing of, of dialing back on Esperanto as uh, we need to cut back on Esperanto because we need to be exalting and elevating Russian. I, I mean, I think it's probably significant that we don't see that, actually. But, but on the other hand, of course, Russian is indeed promoted as the language uniting all of the Soviets. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very big part of, um, of Stalin's language policy. Yeah, but I think that there's also room here, right? And there was even room in Stalin's language projects, <laughs> as much as Stalin is a total annoyance, right? That even though Russian itself is, <laughs> even though Russian itself is, and Russians are asserted as the first among equals, right? That you see this shift in the Soviet ideology in the 1930s. And, the Russian language is emphasized even among the Soviet population above all else. They did not, the Soviets did not cancel the teaching and the publication in uh, minority languages within the Soviet Union right. itself, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. If anything, the idea was that even if you're in the Kazakh SSR and um, the students are in their Kazakh language schools, which they have the absolute right as Soviet citizens to, to do, they must speak Russian, but that Russian language instruction is a second language study, right? So I think that there's, there is the elevation of... Foreign languages as well. Mm -hmm. They don't just see, you know, 
training specialists in English, French, German. I mean, Indian communists were able to speak the languages of the international movement and go and yeah. you know, meet colleagues from other sides. Yeah. It, it, it does realign in, in Stalin. And what internationalism means changes and what kind of people get to participate mm -hmm. in internationalism changes. But like you say, absolutely right. It, it just, it's there. Just this has nothing and being a good Soviet citizen who is a good so citizen diplomat is someone who speaks also French or German, right? No longer is it Esperanto, right? But the prize then is to become an adept in a second national language. That and also use. be politically reliable. That's yes. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that this, this condemnation of Stalin in, in 1951 tells the story about Stalin during the Stalin period. It doesn't. I mean, the sign that Stalin is condemning in 1951 wouldn't have existed without him because sign develops because of the five-year plans. It develops because of this factory concentration policy. And we have a lot of it evidence in the archives that lots of people come into the cities from their villages where they're, mm -hmm. the, they're the only deaf person there. They go into the factory. They have to learn sign first. And lots of, lots of you know... Um, lots of newspaper articles uh, of, of exemplary deaf workers, and I have one where a deaf worker signs, life has become more joyous, comrades, you know, life has become better. <laughs> and actually, you can, the fact that you can do that in China, I think is very significant. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Please. Uh, you so great papers. I have a follow-up question about universal language and Soviet repression. From my layman's, and this is a layman's understanding of Esperanto and its origins, I thought, and I haven't studied it, I thought it was an anarchist project in some way, or maybe it was in some parts of the world or just outside of the USSR, I'm not sure. And you mentioned that, that ties with anarchists and social democrats plays into the repression mm -hmm. in the 1930s. If it is true that, that there were anarchists, there was an anarchist milieu outside of the USSR that was interested in Esperanto. Is that part of the politics of Esperanto prior to the repression of the 30s, or no? Well, the kind of intriguing thing about the politics of Esperanto, both before the revolution and after the revolution within the Soviet Union, without the Soviet Union, is that Esperanto was an international language that uh, was jumped upon by people of a wide variety of ideological stripes and with a wide variety of ideological visions, right? And one reason this is why I find the entire project so fascinating. So in the 1910s, no less than the 1930s, all throughout Europe, but also across the globe, you're going to find anarchists who have taken up Esperanto as a kind of um, core aspect of their anarchist activity, just like you would for social democrats, just like you would for vegetarians, just like you would for capitalists, right? There's interesting corporate histories of people who are Catholics jump on Esperanto, right? Because um, in each one of these niche groups, right, there you, you have people who see the, um, the vital use and the potential that Esperanto can offer them to kind of transmit what their various message might be. Now, the Soviet Esperantists themselves, especially when they were organizing these, these delegations to the Soviet Union, they were touting the fact that they were inviting not just hardcore socialists who were fully already in line with the Soviet cause, right? Part of the, their whole point was, we're going to show not only that Esperanto can be used as this wonderful mechanism for citizen diplomacy, but that we can use it to convert people who are, are, are not fully in line with us just yet. Um, I don't think this was this particularly specific to the Esperantist delegations, but they themselves made the point of any possible social democrat that they could claim to convert and, and all of the rest. But um, in Esperanto history more broadly, 
just about any potential uh, advocacy group you can imagine, there were people who looked at Esperanto and saw the possibility of using this language to reach out to others and to spread their message abroad. Yeah. I think it's useful to think about Esperanto as a pencil shop. Huh? <laughs> you can use it for any kind of pencil. pencil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. um, I was wondering, for both projects, maybe particularly for Esperanto, did Soviet Esperantists particularly frame themselves self-consciously as anti-imperialist in a way? I was just struck by the picture of these, like, uh, these little pictures of people from all over the world engaging in Esperantists. I was wondering if sort of they conceived of sort of Esperanto as playing a role of worldwide emancipation of peoples that would then incorporate them into a worldwide communism, or if this is it wasn't really part of how they saw. Like. Well, I'm glad you asked this question because it allows me to indulge a specific interest that actually ties to the paper that wasn't given and it's part of our panel about basic English. There is a basic English story in the Soviet Union as well. And the Esperantists in the early 1930s um, end up having a great deal of um, ideological fisticuffs with the people who show up in the Soviet 1930s and want to promote basic English. One of whom actually was quite highly positioned. It was um, the wife of the Commissar of Foreign Affairs, Maxim Litvinov. His wife was British born and came to the Soviet Union not speaking Russian. Her whole story fascinates me and at least one other person in this room I know for a fact. But she in the 1930s took on a program of advocating for the teaching of basic English in Soviet schools and got in quite a bit of a spat with the Esperantists. And the Esperantists' first and last line vis-a-vis -vis basic English and any of their potential international language competitors was, Esperanto is the only one that is not imperialist in form. It is precisely anti-imperialist because the whole idea of Esperanto is that it's everybody's second language. It's an auxiliary language. It's not meant to displace your native language. It's not meant to diminish your native language. Everyone having to go through the process of learning Esperanto as a second language means that when you come together and you have your conversations in Esperanto that you're on the same level, in the same space. So I don't think it was their kind of um, first and flashiest line of argumentations, but it was certainly a tool in their repertoire of claims and claim making about their project and its specific um, potential to offer something to the Soviet state and its internationalism that other language projects like basic English could not. There's Ivy Litvinov and the leader of the Soviet Esperantist Union had very, very exciting set of correspondence. <laughs> In any event, that's a story for another time. Hey, no, <laughs> Just wait a moment and Melania will have us all speaking basic Serbian. All right. <laughs> With depth studies, um, because there is a very strong uh, argument that oralism is itself colonialist yes. as a practice. So deaf, deaf uh, people's bodies and their languages have been colonised by speech, and actually, signing is an act of anti-imperialist rebellion. Um, so, in a sense, it kind of fits into all of that. Um, it gets quite problematic in the World Federation of the Deaf because. Um, Quite often, the Soviet delegation is um, serving the needs of Soviet foreign policy rather than actually getting properly into the deaf international sphere. So there's a lot of speeches given by Stutyagin about Vietnam, for example, that go on for ages, and everyone gets really cross with him. Um, whereas I think actually, it would, you know, he would have been served better by actually talking about deafness in, in the USSR and how that works. But 
yes, there's definitely these, these kind of discourses fit there too. Yeah, I, saw, I, I noticed a number of parallels just as you were speaking with those quantum histories. Yes. But we seem to have run out of time, unfortunately, because there's still lots to be said. Um, I brought with me flyers about um, Ulrich Lintz's book, which has just come out in English, on the persecution of Esperantists under Hitler and Stalin. And so I'll put them over here on the side because you might be interested in following up on that. I, I was the translator of it. And, um, and I think that Bridget is on to something really, really big in, um, in seeing Esperantists as a kind of, as exemplars of a particular phenomenon in the, in the Soviet Union. Um, the, I think one of the really interesting things about deafness um, in connection with, um, with, with the Soviet Union particularly is indeed that those kinds of ideological notions, notions about, um, about, about in quotation marks, silencing the deaf by forcing them into a position of inferiority to, to speakers um, is very much an ideological element that is still out there in the yes, deaf community, yes, certainly in the US. Very much in the US. I yep. mean, the, the, the colonizing ideas, yes. that, that all comes from the, the US capital D deaf movement. Yeah. So yeah. It, 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 doesn't it doesn't quite, this is, I think, why Sitiagin doesn't really do it, because I don't think it quite fits with what's going on in the US as well. But yes, mm. absolutely. So we have a break. I don't know how long our break is. How long is our break, Bridget? I don't know. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> allegedly until 3.15. Not 3.15. <laughs> I don't so, even know what time it is. So start <laughs> jumping up and down, because you only have 10 minutes to do it. <laughs> Thank you so much.